Hey, howdy, space nerds. Thanks for tuning in each week as we explore space exploration. Don't let the conversation stop when you reach the end of this episode. Let's keep chatting online. We've launched a new Facebook page to host discussions and share the latest space news. You can find us by searching Are We There Yet? podcast or visiting facebook.com slash awtymars. I'll see you there. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Buzz Aldrin is obsessed with Mars. The Apollo 11 astronaut and second person to walk on the moon is now developing a plan to send humans to live permanently on the Red Planet. The Buzz Aldrin Space Institute at Florida Tech is hoping to fine-tune that vision with research and workshops with experts. One question Buzz has is, what are the psychological impacts of living on Mars? Well, earlier this month, social science experts met at the Kennedy Space Center's visitor complex to answer that very question. Buzz Aldrin's son, Andy Aldrin, serves as the director of the Institute, and I had the chance to speak with him about the sociological challenges of living on Mars and what it was like growing up with a moonwalking dad. I think it starts with what we're doing at the Institute. You know, fundamentally what we're trying to do is develop the programs, plans, advocacy, technology to put humans on Mars permanently. And it's a little different than anything that NASA is doing or others in that typically the rest of the world is talking about expeditions and we're talking about settlements and permanence on Mars. So it's a huge research agenda. And one of the things we learned early on, and this has actually been an issue with my dad, that he feels that one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem, is psychological. And that, you know, when you talk about people moving to another planet permanently, um, that's that creates a very different set of stresses on an individual and on a society, right? Because when you start talking about people on Mars permanently, you know, they're not going to be Americans or Chinese or anything anything else. They're going to be Martians, and they're going to behave like Martians. And, and we really don't understand that. So this workshop is kind of a first step in trying to understand that and building a research agenda off of it. Mm-hmm. That initial question came from, from your father, Buzz Aldrin, then how does the, the human mind work and yeah. how do people interact? Yeah, this is really a question that, that he kicked off. And then you know, we started talking with the... Um, uh, with the psychology department at Florida Tech, both within the, the College of um, Aerospace and the College of uh, Psychology and Liberal Arts, and kind of got a team together talking about this stuff and came up with the idea of putting on a workshop, and so here we are. So what are some of those, those questions that, that you're hoping to either answer today or, or get a jump start in, into researching? So uh, I'll tell you the one that, um, that my father keys on is the question of regret. If someone makes a commitment to go to Mars, what happens when they all of a sudden decide, well, no, maybe I don't really want to be here for the rest of my life? So that's a question. I think, I, I think we're going to find a whole host of issues that are going to primarily have to do with interpersonal relations, right? How do people get along in a confined space when you don't know when you're coming home, right? Even if you go to Antarctica for the, for the winter, you know you're coming back in, in six months, or probably more like eight months, but you know you're coming back. Um, and at Mars, it may be best case, 
you know, you're there for a year and a half or two years. Um, most of the, arch the architecture that we're looking at may not get you back in, for four years. But ultimately, you know, people are going to be committing to be there for the rest of their lives. So you start to put people together in, a, you know, in an enclosed environment with the realization they're going to have to get along for the rest of their lives. And we, you know, most of it just has to do with how do you figure out how to get people to stay friends for, you know, for literally decades. Speaking with your dad who, you know, did go to the mm -hmm. moon and, and did do that and, and spent, you know, a period of time in those cramped quarters with them, did, did he tell you stories about how <laughs> it got a little tight in there? No, not really. I mean, I think they were um, so busy and so committed to the program that they had to execute that I don't think they really thought about that at all. It's surprising that he never talks about cramped quarters. He never talks about psychological issues on that trip. And, and you know, it was only, what, an eight-day trip? Yeah, so it, it, it's a lot easier. Maybe there's something that, that kind of clicked in his head that that was going to become a, a big issue, but um, he's never really talked about it. Maybe we need to take a step back here because the Buzz Aldrin Institute's idea for a Mars mission is, is a little bit different than the NASA's mission. Yeah, uh, I guess... So first of all, you know, what NASA is talking about are typically what you'd call expeditionary missions. You, you pack up everything on a bunch of rockets, you send the rockets to Mars, you land on Mars, you pack up everything a year and a half later and you come home. Um, the core of my dad's architecture is a concept of spacecraft that are cycling between Earth and Mars. And, and the easiest way to think about it is it's like a satellite orbiting the Earth. Once you accelerate to the velocity that you need, you stay at that velocity, more or less, right? And so um, he's devised a trajectory that basically cycles between Earth and Mars. And it's fairly complex how it does it. It's just not like, a, it's not like an orbital trajectory. It's a fairly com complex trajectory. Nevertheless, once you accelerate to that velocity, you stay there. So what that means is you've got a big spacecraft that's housing the people. And so it's got all of your ECLAS systems, it's got your radiation shielding, it's got all the high mass things, and all you have to do is accelerate a relatively small vehicle to meet with it. And then that small vehicle departs from the cycler to land on Mars. And so what it means is the amount of energy it takes to get someone to Mars is about an order of magnitude less. And, and when you talk about Mars, ultimately, we talk about energy and, and how much fuel it's going to take to get you there. So this is a huge difference. And, and if you look long term, in order to sustain a cycling system, the costs are very low. And so what it means is that we can sustain a colony on Mars once they figure out, they have to figure out how to lift off of the land, right? You've got to figure that out. You simply can't afford to, to send, you know, literally it takes about... Uh, a ton per person per year, uh, half a ton, excuse me, per person per year. Um, and you can't afford to sustain people on another planet if you've got to send all of that up. But once you've got that habitation system up and operating, we could sustain a presence on Mars, continue to send people there for, for I think, a fraction of what we're spending on human spaceflight right now. I mean, literally, it would be... Um, a single rocket launch, a big rocket probably, single rocket launch uh, every other year. And other than that, whatever cargo you need to send up there. But I think the only way 
you can have a sustainable presence, a sustainable program of any kind, is if that program doesn't gobble up your entire budget, right? Which is what we have a tendency to do in human spaceflight, right? We make a program, whether it's station, shuttle, and it gobbles up the entire budget. And at some point we say, well, we want to do something else. Well, in order to do something else, you've got to cancel what you're doing. And what we're trying to do is create something that you can actually sustain while you figure out what the next thing is that you want to do. So it's a very important, I, I think, architecture and a difference between what we're talking about doing and, and sort of the classic expeditionary architectures. Something you mentioned about, um, about this architecture in your remarks earlier mm-hmm. is that the first person that goes there is probably not going to come back. How are you going to sell that? That's a really tough sell. So, um, it is going to be a tough sell. And I, I think that probably, you know, when it, it, probably the first person, the first crews that go there are going to come back. And at some point, we will, um, we will end up, you know, after, after a certain number of sonotic periods, a certain number of crews going up there, you'll see crews that are going to stay there for very long periods of time and some crews will then ultimately stay there all along i don't think the first crew that goes up there is just going to stay there but it's uh it's a useful organizing thought when you're talking about psychological issues and and let's go back to talking about those psychological issues because you know this is a really interesting workshop that you have here that's looking at these questions do you think that that we are spending a lot more time looking at the hardware looking at the the rockets the architecture the not enough time looking at the human aspect of things i think we are not spending enough time looking at the human aspect of things i think in part that's driven by um, by the mission architecture you know, if, if all you've got to do is figure out how to keep people healthy and happy for a couple of years we kind of know how to do that on the space station so i'm not saying that what nasa is doing is not right i'm just saying if we're serious about mars we're going to have to pay a lot more attention to this and yeah it's always the tendency of technical agencies to focus on the technology but I really believe that you've got to start with you've got to start with the human, and as I said, the human brain, right? Ultimately, that's what it's all about: is keeping the brain is the data gathering machine that's there, and so we really need a very systemic approach to understanding what it's going to take to have a sustainable presence on Mars, you know, colony settlement, whatever you want to call it. It's you can't just look at the technology. You can't just look at the psychology. You can't just look at, at human health. You've got to bring all of these things together. And what's, what's the challenge? Is it, is it not enough interest, not enough funding? What is it? I think in part, as I said, it's kind of driven by the architectures. So, again, if you're only going for a couple of years, you can probably gut it out without thinking about all of these things. So I think it needs to be driven by... Um, the requirements established for permanent presence on Mars. And, and so I'm not faulting the system. The system is doing what it should be doing. Uh, in a sense, if I'm faulting anything, it's, it's um, I don't want to call it a lack of vision, because, I mean, sending people to Mars is a great vision, but I think we need to take it a step further and make sure that we are thinking about putting people on Mars permanently, that it's not just about sending people up there for a year and a half. Because I think if, we, if all we're talking about is sending people up there for a year and a half, the risk is, in fact, the certainty is that we'll send a few missions up there and then we'll get tired of it, just like we got tired of going to the moon. And, and, and sometime, at some point, people will come back and we'll go, okay, been there, done that, we're over it. And then what do we do? You know, we'll end up you know, sort of caught between programs for a decade or something like that. 
Now, when I talk to astronauts who spent time in long-duration space mm -hmm. flight, you know, they tell me the one thing they miss the most is their family. And I think that you have some interesting perspective here, as your father was on a very risky mission. He went to the moon. What's it like on that family back home for someone who is leaving Earth's orbit and heading into deep space? Yeah, well, so the thing you've got to understand about that is, um, for us, it was normal, right? I won't say most of the kids, a bunch of the kids that, are, that were in my school were astronauts' kids. Uh, the way our house was situated, because we had a sort of triangular lot, there were literally five houses that were adjacent to our house uh, along the back lot line. Three of those houses were astronauts. I mean, at my elementary school, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting an astronaut's kid. I'm serious. So um, it was kind of normal for us. Dad was just away on another trip. It just so happened his trip was to the moon. So, um, yeah, it, was, it, it, it didn't seem that odd to me. So what we experienced, you know, is fundamentally different, I think, from what families experience today. And, and you know, it's going to be that the family issue is a huge issue with, with someone going to Mars for a very long period of time. But, you know, when, um, you know, when people got on a boat to come to America, they probably had little expectation of seeing their, their extended family back at the homeland. So it's not, you know, historically unique. Other than those friends that you had, was mm -hmm. there any other support system for the kids? Was there any other support system for, for you know, your mother or anybody else? Oh, sure. I mean... Um, you know, NASA had um, a couple of people that were there the whole time, and, and um, as a kid, it was it was awesome. You know, I had there was like a reporter that was hanging out. There were reporters that were hanging out on the front lawn, and you know, all they wanted to do is play football with me. I mean, right? So you know, if they wanted to throw the football, they were my buddies, and you know, they had donuts. So it was cool. For I didn't need a support system. I mean, it was all cool, but. And, you know, now I reflect back and I look at the pictures of my mom, and, and she was tense, to be sure. But, I, you know, there were two things I worried about. One, with the ascent engine light. And two, um, you know, my dad was bouncing around on the moon. I don't know if you remember the pictures. So I'm, I'm 11 years old, right? And I'm just absolutely convinced, you know, there's this cord going to the TV cameras, and he's going to trip over that cord, <laughs> and he's going to fall on his back like a dead bug, on the surface of the moon in front of what, like three billion people, including, you know, every one of my classmates, right? So, I mean, that was what worried me. So you were more worried of your, your father embarrassing you on the moon Absolutely. than anything? Sure, I'm an 11-year-old. What, <laughs> what else is there? So what, what kind of changed your, your, your father's, um, you know, almost obsession with putting people on Mars now? He's got this, this yeah. vision. Where did yeah. that come from? Um, so he's never stopped being passionate about space. And in, in, in a lot of ways, he's more passionate today than he, he has ever been, certainly more passionate about it than, than when he landed. Um, you know, I think it's, it's driven by, I think what he sees as a gap in what the nation's trying to do, and he desperately wants to get things focused and on track, and he has a vision, and he wants to get it across. And so how does the Buzz Aldrin Space Institute play in with that vision and how is it working with Florida Tech? As I said, you know, he's got a vision, and it's comprehensive. He will take you through every mission from where we are today to permanence on Mars. Um, so it's comprehensive. It's like, like I said, 150 million miles wide and about 10 centimeters thick. So what we're trying to do is identify the places 
where we think more work really needs to be done you know, to make sure that there's the glue that holds things together and, and go do that work. And so this workshop is a piece of that, and I think that the agenda that comes out of it will help work this issue. There are other projects we're doing on vehicle design. We've done a lot of work on trajectories. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of identif- my job is to identify the issues that we need to work and try and put together the teams to go work those issues. So we're working trajectories. We're working vehicle design. Uh, we're doing a lot of interesting things with plant growth. You know, so they're trying to address the big challenges. Was it an easy decision to put the Buzz Aldrin Institute here on Florida Space Coast? Yeah, it was. Well, in part because my dad decided to put himself here. Um, but putting it at Florida Tech wasn't a difficult decision at all. When we kind of, like I said, we kind of looked around, and this was an obvious place to go. And we've had um, it's a great relationship with the university. Um, so yeah, we're pretty excited about it. And there's a lot of stuff that we're, in a lot of ways, we're just kind of starting to get traction with you know, getting funding and teams like that lined up. So um, I think we're starting to build some momentum now. Now the, the Buzz Aldrin Space Institute's mm-hmm. vision for Mars exploration. I know the Institute is still young, right. but do you have a timeline as to when something like this is, is realistically possible to put the, that, that first round of humans on the surface of Mars? Sure, my dad will tell you, 2039. And I think, you know, NASA's talking 2035-ish, 33 maybe, for expeditions and they're diff- very different pathways. NASA's kind of saying, if we put our head down right now and, and get to Mars, we can get there by then. My dad's got a comprehensive set of missions that uh, may not get you there quite as fast, but it actually has a sustainable infrastructure to it. So, yeah, I think in those kind of time frames, and what it really, you know, what it really comes down to, I think, is is making the commitment that drives you to make the hard choices. I mean, we need a national commitment, really an international commitment, and, and it's a commitment to go to Mars, but more than anything, you know, a commitment is about not just what you are going to do, but what you are not going to do with the scarce resources you've got. Andy Aldrin, uh, thank you so much for speaking with us. Brendan, it's my pleasure. That was Andy Aldrin, director of the Buzz Aldrin Space Institute. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, but join the conversation online. We've got a Facebook page. Search for Are We There Yet Podcast, or you can take to Twitter. The show is AWTYMars, Are We There Yet Mars, get it? And I'm at Space Brendan. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE, and our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more space news online at WMFE.org slash space. And until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.